We get 60 million interactions a year. 60 million people or machines reach out to us for support. And 6 million of those 60 million end up becoming service tickets. So it's a very, very massive scale. And there's lots of heroic stories because as you as you mentioned as well, Des, that many of these um, systems are mission critical, right? If they go down for one minute, it's millions of dollars at stake. So I stay away from the heroism. Welcome to another episode of Pioneers of Possible, the show that connects you with the futurists, leaders, dreamers, and builders who have reshaped what's possible in the worlds of business and technology. I'm Des Blanchfield, your host and fellow technologist. Today, I have the pleasure of having in the studio with me, Dewey McLennan. Hi, Dewey. How are you today? I'm great. Lovely to meet you. And you. Now, I understand you're in uh, Raleigh. Uh, Durham and uh, the US of A, uh, just uh, is it north or south of DC? <laughs> yeah, we're about 200 miles south of Washington, DC. It's a, it's a great place to live. I've lived here for 17 years and um, uh, it's a really big site for IBM and a, a little mini Silicon Valley of um, the, you know, we call it the East Silicon Valley. So it's it's fun to work with a bunch of geek heads and a lot of uh, good, good, strong IBM executives and IBMers. So, uh, yeah, it's, um, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's a beautiful little area. I, I personally have not been there, as I mentioned before, when we were chatting before we hit record, but uh, it's on my to-do list to get there and have a look at it. Not quite the bucket list, but uh, I've, uh, <laughs> I, I haven't been quite close as 200K of DC, away from D.C., but uh, certainly flown over a couple of times and, and wanted to go there. But I understand it's a beautiful green tree, lush area. It uh, probably reminds me a little bit of Sydney in that uh, uh, everywhere you go here in Australia and Sydney in particular, it's either bushland or green trees and... Uh, so um, I'm very much about trees and grasslands. Now, to quickly introduce you, um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that you're the vice president and business line executive for IBM's uh, Global Technology Services, Technology Support Services part of the business. Is that correct? Yes, I am. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, just do a quick intro to your role, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so uh, so I, um, I've been with IBM for, since about 2000 and uh, joined IBM in India. Uh, which is where I grew up, and um, and uh, you know moved to Raleigh, North Carolina in 2000, and have been with IBM ever since. I've had the great opportunity to work um, in in IBM uh, US's largest site, Raleigh. Like I said, we have about 15,000 people here when I started. Um, we have the PC company, which we sold to to Lenovo, and um, and uh, you know a really strong area for our software labs as well as our hardware development. Uh, so I've worked in many businesses around um, IBM, and uh, the, for the last five years, I've been part of the technology support services group, and um, we are mission with the you know women and men who solve clients' technology problems, hardware problems, and software problems. Mostly clients call us when something is not working. Uh, so we are about 19,000 of us. And um, our, our mission in life is to delight our customers and make sure that their infrastructure is up and running um, and you know, make, keep them uh, out of trouble. Um, so um, most of our, our, our employees um, wake up every morning with a customer service mindset. It's a truly a very... A unique mindset where you wake up every morning and you know figure out how to tackle difficult, complex issues, 
and uh, and you know really delight customers. Our, our most of uh, most of IBMers do all kinds of cool things for our clients, and um, you know many of our employees are are really well, very very close to clients. So uh, most of us spend most of our time with with clients. So it's a really good business to be a part of. You mentioned that you're um, originally in New Delhi. Is that correct? Yeah, New Delhi's home. So I grew up there, did my undergrad there, got my MBA in Mumbai, which uh, was called Bombay back then. My first job was was with Wipro in Bangalore. And that was a great place to learn, uh, you know, the high tech world. And then I, I moved from Wipro to IBM. That would have been an interesting uh, shift uh, moving to the U.S. I mean, uh, on a whole range of levels. I mean, exciting new uh, role, exciting new company, but also uh, uh, a very, very different uh, shift as far as uh, country goes. Yeah, it was. Um, I have to say, the first six months to a year were um, were you know quite challenging. Uh, even though I'd grown up speaking English, most people, because of my accent, didn't understand what I was saying, and uh, you know people focused on my accent rather than the content. Uh, so uh, it was interesting, and um, I grew, moving from a very large city, New Delhi. Uh, to a, a small, smaller town, uh, Raleigh was a, another interesting challenge. But I have to say, you know, um, uh, people uh, here in the U.S. have been so um, embracing and so um, welcoming. And now, of course, I, I am, you know, one of them. And uh, it, it's great to be able to, um, you know, I was tackling problems for IBM at a at a smaller scale in India. And, uh, you know, just moving here and, and being exposed to some of the bigger challenges or more strategic things that IBM's working on. Uh, but this was, you know, back in 2000. Now, as you see, more a lot more innovation. Had, had, had it been the current time, a lot more of our innovation is coming from India, China, Brazil, all over the world, pretty much Eastern Europe. So I, you know, I, I truly think it's a great opportunity to work for a global company like IBM where, um, you know, regardless of where you're based, uh, you have the opportunity to work on, on on solving real client problems and using technology to do that. Uh, so I, I feel very fortunate to be here. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It, it, it's, it's actually interesting that you mentioned that because I think, you know, you've personally sort of gone through that shift to move to the US and there was, you know, uh, I mean, you said it was around the Y2K era, really, because if you moved in 1999 and this sort of, you know, ended up in, in the US in the 2000s, you would have gone through the whole Y2K experience in that big shift. That must have been interesting. But uh, um, you must be seeing a massive transition um, in your role from sort of the, I'm, I'm sure there's still a lot of big iron in the big mainframe space, but there must be a shift also in the adoption of different types of services now where instead of buying you know, a zillion dollar technology, people can buy it at component level and, and surely that's bringing about a, a big shift in how people are dealing with some of the challenges that you're being faced with what might have been in the Y2K or a big heavy tin to now sort of you know, intangible things that you can't even touch because they're in the cloud. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, you know, on on the whole globalization thing, um, where I have my team is truly global. We have nineteen thousand people in in almost every country, every city. So uh, you know, if if IBM in a city has two people, one of them will be somebody in my business. So it's uh, it's a really great chance to get really grounds up insights on what our client challenges are, right? Um, because they they do 
call us when they have issues. Um, I, you know, so that's sort of the grounds up thing that we've uh, we've had to learn and and uh, really embrace. But one thing that um, uh, many of the clients that I meet or spend time with, and I do travel very frequently overseas and within the U.S., we're seeing that most of our CIOs of line of business decision makers or VPs of supply chain, all all the clients I meet with, um, they're really grappling with the the point that you made about you know technology being very very different um uh, earlier it was one big mainframe which was mission critical and you know everything else was um sort of attached to it but uh, the whole world of software defined the whole world of uh, you know everything being connected everything having an ip address and uh, being connected uh, it's there's a lot of good things that are happening, but it's also posing a lot of uh, challenges. So I always think, how can we work with our clients? And you know, all of us love our cell phones, right? Um, we talked about having teenage kids who are constantly attached to their cell phones, uh, but um, you know, the, the cell phone experience, which is so simple and seamless, right? Uh, it's so easy to download an app. It's so easy to use your phone. It's so intuitive. So uh, sort of our goal is to offer a very simplified cell phone-like experience, but for any technology, for any hardware, any software, in the cloud, on-prem, you know, pick pick your favorite buzzword. But that's really the, the shift that in the technology support services business where we grew up supporting product by product, now we're really shifting the whole thing about how can we use technology and, and, you know, great things like Watson and augmented reality and things like that to help our clients have a cell phone-like experience, irregardless of a hardware or a software, a piece of software or a mainframe or an IoT sensor. So it's a, it's a pretty big shift. Um, and, and we're doing all this with challenge budgets. You know, no CIO tells me I have a lot more money to spend. Let me tell you how you, I can spend it with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think there's a CIO on the planet that's got that problem yet. Uh, not even the Bitcoin billionaires. Now, it, you know, through your childhood and, and, and through your academic background, um, I remember seeing some uh, highlights there around how your family had sort of driven you and they really drove you to kind of, uh, I think you, you mentioned something along the lines of being rebellious, but in a good way and always inquisitive and working hard, loving sports, et cetera, had opportunity to holiday in different places. Um, through that whole childhood experience, was there a particular mentor or were there mentors uh, that sort of really stood out that helped drive that um, energy and focus and, and hunger to kind of just develop and grow and build your personality, your character and academic strengths? Yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of people who've influenced me, but I, I have to say, like my my grandfather, um, you know, being gro- growing up as a girl child or a woman in India, uh, you know, there's a, not in my family, but there's a lot of stereotypes that are levied upon you, right? Right. Uh, and, um, you know, there's a certain stereotype that you're expected to follow, you know. Um, and uh, my grandfather, who, pretty, you know, pretty much grew up in a village in northern India in the state of Punjab, uh, basically moved to New Delhi and got an education and uh, and made a career for himself. Um, and he did that um, through education, right, clearly. And he never stopped learning. 
like he was in his 60s and he decided he wanted to go to law school. Um, and we were like, you know, Nanaji, you know, you you are the secretary of the finance ministry and you, you're so accomplished. But why do you need to do that? And I think, you know, from him, I learned a lot of good things. First of all, don't let people define who you're going to be. Um, you know, you be who you want to be. And he always uh, encouraged. I have two sisters, twin sisters. So you know, just three daughters, people give condolences to my grandfather when I was born. And, uh, and he <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, flipped it and sat in your face. And, you know, he said, you guys are going to grow up to, to put all those people down and teach them a lesson. So all three of us went to really good schools. And we were, uh, we, I, we all three played basketball, um, not only for our state, but also for India. We went on to play field hockey, and my grandmother would always be chasing me and saying, you're going to get a tan, and you're going to turn dark, and no Indian boy is going to want to marry you. And my grandfather would say, no, let them go play hockey. And, uh, you know, it's just a very interesting mix where my my grandparents and my mom were always sort of, um, uh, they always valued education. So that was a given. But some of the other things like speaking up, having a mind of my own, traveling and seeing the world and, you know, achieving whatever I set my mind to uh, was very liberating growing up uh, with a grandfather. And also he was extremely honest and disciplined. So he never really, you know, there's a lot of uh, people in the Indian government who, who do things the wrong way. But my grandfather was extremely honest and very um, that was a really good um you know, ethical lesson to learn, speak the truth, don't take bribes, do the right thing, and it'll serve you well in life. So I think he was my moral compass. He was definitely, you know, pushed my thinking, uh, never let a stereotype dictate who you are. So I was very fortunate to have him as my granddad. <laughs> I'm curious about how, how did you get, I mean, you, you mentioned you have an MBA and whatnot, and, and that's that's outstanding. But um how did you come to get into IT? What was sort of that eureka moment, that aha moment where one day you decided I'm going to get into technology in particular? Because it sounds like you had sport, academia, um, a whole range of other people aspects. Uh, I, I can see now where that whole uh, capacity to, to provide services to clients has come from. But uh, IT in particular, I'm really curious how, uh, how you pivoted to move into information technology and that side of the business aspects. So uh, my my father is in the high tech world. He, in fact, is one of the few you know people in in the eighties who started the IT industry in India. Uh, so that not I mean it's not like he started the IT industry, but he was one of the first few people who got into electronics. And then you know it took us to the Hanover Fair in Germany and exposed us to some of the the techie things that were going on. And then when I gra- graduated from my business school at that time. Uh, I, I finished my MBA in 95. Um, there were uh, sort of three areas people were going into. Uh, one was the whole equity research, uh, you know, the fintechs, uh, as we call them now, but uh, the financial side where people made a lot of money and uh, and they were really cool jobs, right? Go join a big bank and, and things like that. The, and the second area was the, uh, the Unilevers and the Procter & Gamble's, the whole brand marketing area. 
which was, again, uh, sort of very pure marketing, building a brand, which was interesting to me. And then it was tech. It was the third era that was really uh, sort of uh, exploding at that time. And I, 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 I like money, but I also like building stuff. <laughs> so I, and I, I love working on new things. Um, even my entire career at IBM, I'll find some new business that I can, you know, get in early and shape it. And I felt like, um, you know, fintech maybe would be uh, just a good way to make money, but I wouldn't be able to build things, get my hands dirty. It was my impression. I could be wrong. And so basically, I, I was leading towards tech. I thought, hey, this is a great opportunity to go work on new cool stuff. And uh, the industry is growing. And my dad always sort of uh, was um, a role model and who started all these things early in the, in the mid-80s. So I think all of those together kind of got me into high tech. <laughs> you mentioned earlier on, uh, just before we get into your role, there's one thing I want to highlight that uh, really cements uh, what a geek you are on the inside. You mentioned that you specifically have a hobby of building IoT devices and you, you played around with a project. I think, and, quote, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I want to quote you here. You you uh, played with batteries and solar cells and, and working on remote connectivity and so forth for a sensor that was a, uh, went into a parks uh, in your local area that counted bicycles and cars going past? Yeah, absolutely. We, um, all three of us, my husband, my daughter, and I, we're very passionate about IoT. Of course, it works very well at work, but at home too, because if I have to support and advise clients on Internet of Things and how do you roll them out and, and support it, I wanted to make sure that I sort of get my hands dirty and learn about it. Um, the same thing, I, I bought a Bitcoin when I was getting into blockchain because I wanted to experience it. And, you know, once you're personally vested in something, you learn more. Uh, but uh, but coming back to IoT, yeah, we do. We um, all three of us enjoy it. We've uh, we built an IoT device that we have um, that's uh, deployed in our state parks. And uh, it basically goes on bike trails as well as uh, hiking trails. And it has an accelerometer, so it, it measures how many people, like there's a different frequency for people, different for bikes, and different for cars. And our parks are basically able to use that data to first of all know how many people came in and how many left, so they can close the park at the end of the day, but they can also use it to generate more funding based on utilization of the trails. And then I also travel very frequently, as does my husband, so we have built our own IoT watering system. Uh, so we, you know, we have a bunch of plants on our back deck, and uh, through the through our IoT sensor, it, it's able to measure the soil, the moisture in our plants, and and uh, connect to the weather forecast, and it automatically waters our plants. So, <laughs> wow! <laughs> <It's fun. laughs> I, so, yeah, do you open do you open source <laughs> these things and give them away, or do you uh, get this plan of becoming a billionaire on uh, watering no. systems? We're all all about open source. Most of this stuff is on GitHub, and I am a, a very, very strong believer in open source. So nothing, you know, because once you put an IP to it, you have to protect it, and that's paying lawyers a boatload of dollars, which I'm not a big fan of. So <laughs> it's uh, yes. all open source indeed, and happy to share it with you if you like. I did notice <laughs> that we were we were both members of various uh, open source communities, particularly OpenStack, and, and uh, you know, I think you're a member of the OpenStack uh, group on LinkedIn, uh -huh. and, and I was tracking some of the stuff there and I was like okay uh, I need to open that door around your geekery because uh, there's a strong business focus and a lot of consulting strength but uh, maybe people didn't know that you're quite such a geek but uh, that's awesome I mean the fact that you even know what GitHub is magic um, but the, um, committing code to GitHub really puts you in a whole new stratosphere of wow factor for me 
Maybe we can now jump into a bit more detail about the role specifically. So your title is Vice President and Business Line Executive for the Technology Support Services Inside Global Technology Systems. That's a mouthful. Can we just dive into specifically what technology support services are? Um, maybe break it up into a couple of things. So firstly, can I just ask you, what is it? What is technology support services in, in, in short form? Our business is responsible for selling and delivering on the maintenance. And it ranges from IBM technology to uh, multi-vendor. So we support more than 30,000 different OEMs products. And it really has three pillars. Um, the first pillar is remote, remote support. So, you know, whether you come to the IBM support portal or you call IBM or your machine calls home, all of that, we have our remote support services. Yep. Field services. So we have, you know, people who go out when you call an IBM field engineer, IBM uh, person who shows up to fix your stuff in your data center or your retail store or your bank branch. Uh, that IBM badged employee works in technology support services. Right. And lastly... We run a very large supply chain business. So we have 585 stocking locations. We run a massive supply chain and uh, we carry parts. So if, you know, something is broken and it needs a part to fix it, then our supply chain kicks in and we get the part to the client. Either we install it for them or the client installs it themselves. So it's got three pillars, remote support, field services and parts logistics. But it's all around providing a support after a client has bought a certain piece of technology, whether it's in their data center or it's distributed in their retail store or bank branch or hospital. Did you say 580 sites holding uh, parts and stock? That's that's phenomenal. Yeah, it's a very very large parts operations that we run, right? Because we um, we have thousands of clients, and uh, pretty much globally, we're present in over 130 countries. Uh, so you know, we have to make sure parts available uh, within two hour or four hour or overnight a service level agreement from South Africa to, you know, New Delhi, India to the United States. And so it's a pretty massive parts operation. That's something that people probably don't really understand. I think, you know, the role you've got there, I mean, 19,000 people around the world, uh, all the way down to 580 or different uh, supply sites. Uh, I think very few people really have had a lot of exposure to what you're talking about there at the end of what you were just saying specifically around service level agreements and how you fulfill to those. I think a lot of people are used to just, you know, self-service resetting passwords for webmail and uh, maybe, you know, going to an Apple store to replace a component on a, on a phone or just swapping the whole phone out these days because we don't tend to fix anything. Um, but when it's an eight-foot-high comms rack full of mainframe equipment or routers and switches and servers and so forth or, or $100 sensors mm-hmm. or the other end, You've got to physically have the bits to go out and swap that out and replace it and test it and make sure the little LEDs are flashing and the data's flowing and then and then go back and reset it and and start the clock counting for the service level agreement again and two and four hour response time on site. I mean that mm-hmm. there must be some amazing challenges you've come across there. Are there any uh, standout anecdotes of some of the the things that you've dealt with? I mean, you, you, from the Y two K period, I'm sure there's some, but. Over the last decade or so, have there been any projects that just stand out where you've had to do something outrageous like fly a $2 part on a jet airplane across the planet to fix something? <laughs> yeah, we have we have many such, you know, heroic stories, as you as you mentioned, right? But I think um, 
you know, my job really is to make sure that we have a whole systematic uh, process and operation operationally available. Uh, the operations are highly available. Um, we have very, very strong service level commitments to our clients. And and one thing, you know, clearly there are uh, out of our 19,000 people, uh, just also to give you an idea on the scale, we get 60 million interactions a year, right? So 60 million people or machines reach out to us for support. And 6 million of those 60 million end up becoming service tickets, which we you know, then take action. Either we ship apart or we send an SSR to fix it. So it's a very, very massive scale. And there's lots of heroic stories because, as you, as you mentioned as well, Des, that many of these um, systems are mission critical, right? If they go down for one minute, it's millions of dollars at stake. So you know, I, I stay away from the heroism of it and stay more focused on ensuring that, uh, you know, our people are are up and running. And um, and how how can we do this? Not only through our great people, we have fantastic people. I mean, you should see the passion and energy around solving client problems. I mean, they're a different DNA, a different league. Uh, but in addition to those brilliant 19,000 people, what more can we do from a technology point of view to make them smarter, make them better, make them more efficient, make them do their job better? Uh, so, um, you know, just, um, I mean, there, there are clients, uh, very, very large clients that outsource their entire support to IBM. So we, we have over, you know, 60 to 70 million devices that they have, irregardless of whose technology it is, how old it is, some of these systems are 20 years old, right? And and for us to run an operation to support this diverse set of things for one client, um, there are many such clients like that. Uh, it's a really arduous uh, task, and um, it's, a, it's a very fun, fun but mentally challenging. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. And <laughs> so please don't ask me to make decisions on what's for dinner because no. it's been... It's been <laughs> I was, about to, I was about to ask you, when you get home, uh, can you just uh, outsource the challenge of what's going to be for dinner? Because we have the same thing. Both my wife and I work, and some days we just SMS each other and go, your turn. And we know that means sort out dinner, sort out homework, you know. Now, there's some things that I'd really like to quickly touch on. There were, there were three things that you mentioned you did in projects, specifically around driving automation and increasing the, the level of support people can get. Um, for those very reasons that you're talking about, like you know the, the ongoing challenge to get more value out of every dollar they spend um, mm-hmm. and, and finding where the value is in the engagement with IBM, because not just IBM, but everyone's being challenged to provide more value. So there yeah. were three that I'd love to ask you about because you mentioned a couple of things in passing which I made note of, particularly in a, an engagement where you implemented a Watson uh, uh, project for maintenance, one around blockchain, and you mentioned that you bought a Bitcoin, which is funny. So it's probably worth mm-hmm. about $15,000 on today's market because it dropped from <laughs> 17 to 15 last night. They'll sell it now. Um, so Watson blockchain, and there was one in particular that um, really stood out that you mentioned of augmented reality because I don't think we mm-hmm. see many opportunities for augmented reality to be implemented yet. It's very, very early days for it. But firstly, I'd love to hear about the Watson piece. Tell us what you did with Watson sure. for the maintenance project. So just to sort of set the tone in terms of the savings, right, um, the question you asked earlier, we're typically, when we work with our CIOs who are challenged on their budgets, uh, we we uh, when we talk to them about consolidating the entire four walls of their data center to IBM, we commit a 20% saving in their operating expense, right? So their OPEX will go down by 20%. Wow. We commit uh, we commit a two and a half year extended life of the equipment because, you know, most of the vendors are focused on refreshing and selling them new gear. But we, we 
we may mainly care about making sure that gear is relevant, it's secure, it's patched, you know, it's updated. So we typically commit to another two and a half years of additional useful life of their multi-vendor equipment. Um, and we also, you know, that obviously translates into CapEx savings. So this is, it's not a joke. We take this extremely seriously. Um, and so it's real, real value and real commitment of savings for them. But then how we do it is, to your point, you know, we have these great uh, uh, IBMers who, who do a great job. They're highly technical. They're highly trained. They have average 16 years of work experience. They're IBM badged, very passionate. But we have to make these people be more successful. Now they are not only supporting one mainframe, but they're supporting a mainframe and an IoT sensor, the same person. So you can imagine a person in Wisconsin or, you know, Idaho or pick a, a remote site who has to go sit in front of a client um, and, and, and support a very diverse set of technologies. So to do that, what we've done is we've implemented these three technologies. We've implemented Watson. Uh, so using we're using Watson uh, from a uh, interaction with the client point of view. So let me cover that first. So when you go into the IBM support portal, you can actually ask the question, uh, the problem that you're facing in natural language and, and get an answer from Watson. This is not a chat. It's not a human chatting with you. It's actually Watson. Uh, we've been, we started using Watson five years ago. So we have a very, very massive, you know, data lake or huge repository. Watson has ingested all kinds of technical journals and so on. Um, and, and so, so a client can, you know, just dialogue with Watson and maybe it solves their problems or it doesn't. And we have some track record of how many problems are solved. Now, if the client is not satisfied um, and, their, and their issue is not resolved, they can, you know, uh, call 1-800-IBM-SERV, which is, you know, globally consistent. And when our agents are speaking with the client uh, to solve their problems, you know, they're asking questions to ensure they can, you know, diagnose the issue, uh, does they are basically they're using Watson to do this. So our agents have access to the Watson interface and we we have a bunch of, um, you know, intellectual property and investments we've made making Watson uh, relevant in the support industry. Uh, but basically our agents are using Watson to solve our clients' problems. And it's really helped us in, first of all, clients self-serve. You know, they, many of us don't like to talk to humans and, you know, I just want to get my answer and move on. And then if I have to talk to a human, I don't want to repeat all my problems that I've stated this far. And I want this human to solve my problem immediately without asking me stupid questions, and which is really what Watson allows our agents to do. They look smart and good and solve the client's problems much faster. Wow. Now, you talked about uh, something earlier on about blockchain. Uh, I'd like to just mm -hmm. quickly dive into kind of where that's been implemented. And we hear a lot about blockchain. Not many people fully understand <laughs> that it's a distributed database in effect, but a, a very clever database that protects itself from being hacked and broken. Um, where, where have you been able to implement blockchain for a client recently that uh, went into production? I'm really keen to hear that story. Absolutely. So, um, as you you and I have discussed, we we have um, we have one client specifically um, that we support in 130 countries. We provide support to them. Um, in, and in these 130 countries, we have about eight or nine service level agreements, right? Like average time to answer the phone, you know, problem resolution time. So, so imagine these hundreds of countries, imagine each country having 10 to 12 different SLAs, and some are consistent, some are discrete, and this client only pays us every time we deliver a service request to them. Oh, wow. So, 
So on an average, we had 40,000 different interactions with the client uh, where we were, you know, providing service on their behalf to their customers. And uh, we were, um, so we implemented blockchain. And now every every time we, uh, you know, do a service ticket for them, it's entered in the blockchain in this trusted ledger. So our clients have access to it and we have access to it. And it completely took away all the anxiety and the you know, disagreements between the two companies on, hey, you said you would do this, but you didn't do this. So we, uh, we've implemented blockchain across the world. Uh, we had 40 people on their staff and our staff who was always who were reconciling all these you know did you do what you said you were going to do am i going to audit you you know pay money to to deloitte now for auditing so it's uh, you know really improved our relationship with the client the service was always good but now we can prove it through blockchain we integrated contracts so there you know the contract and the payments that they owe us um, are all transparent completely in this trusted ledger and their cfo who was you know always coming after us with audits as actually become a great friend you know personal friend as well as a business friend uh, because of implementation of blockchain in the support world that's but a whole I, new uh, angle that's a whole new angle on blockchain saving lives really uh outside <laughs> of medicine i love that uh and and i i think i'm going to get you back on the show just to talk about purely that one alone because that's a very topical one now the last one quickly before we wrap up is augmented reality you mentioned that earlier on Mm-hmm. Uh, augmented reality, and I think we've sort of seen it recently in a very popular form with the Pokemon game where people grab their smartphones and chase Pokemon creatures around. And I probably lost about six kilos of fat walking around the city chasing the dog and my child with Pokemon for <laughs> God knows long, although I, I refused to drive anywhere. Apparently they'd pick up the map and go, there's one five kilometers away. I'm like, okay, we've got to walk there. Um, where on earth did you implement augmented reality in a project? Well, so we have, like I said, 19,000 engineers. 90% of them are using augmented reality. So it's it's mainstream for us. 90%? And what, 90%, yes. Wow. 90% of our engineers, when they come to fix a problem uh, in a client's data center, they basically are using augmented reality. We've implemented it in such an interesting way where if, and we, we're using cell phones. We, we dabbled with Google goggles and stuff, but it was just way too geeky, you know, for so many people and the scale. So we take a phone, uh, we hover the phone, uh, which has our AR application. Um, over the technology that they're trying to fix. Now, I, like I gave you an example, many of our SSRs or our engineers, um, you know, they're experts in about 10 technologies, but they're supporting 30,000 different technologies. Right. So if they, if they encounter a technology or a model that they're not extremely comfortable with, then they, they start using augmented reality. They hover, you know, the phone, uh, the AR app over, say, a, a Cisco switch, and we have uh, COCs in the back. So we have uh, centers of competence where we have 20, 30 people who are very, very deep technical experts in that particular technology. And they have launched their augmented reality app. So the two of them are now viewing the exact same thing. And through AR, we're able to help our field engineer fix the problem. We can say, hey, don't touch this, you know, this this board, it'll, it's too hard, you know, unscrew this thing to reach the, you know, the memory. And so we're able to use um, augmented reality to help our engineers fix a diverse set of technical uh, products with uh, deep, deep, deep technical expertise on the, you know, uh, uh, remotely available to them. That's astounding. I love that. Now, uh, time-wise, we're running out of time. So let me just, uh, I'd like to jump into one quick final thing. Um, what I'd like to do is hand you a crystal ball, a virtual crystal ball. I'd love you to gaze <laughs> into it for a moment. 
what's in the horizon in the next three to five years in your mind? So personally and professionally, um, if you were to sort of step back from that and go, you know, okay, well, in three to five years, what are the big ideas, the big trends, what disruptions and things we see? We've had an amazing disruptive decade, particularly the last three to five years. Given what you're seeing, this amazing team of nearly 20,000 people around the world and something like 130, 180 countries, you've got a very unique uh, uh, lens on the world. Where do you see the big things coming across the horizon from us, whether it's a big idea or a trend? What's coming at us? <laughs> um, I, you know, at a, at a high level, I would say, uh, you know, technology is changing business, right? And, and if our clients can, you know, the clients who embrace technology to disrupt business and business models are the ones that are, are definitely going to have an edge. Um, and, you know, I'm sure you know of more, more, more examples than, than I know of. But I think that's something that's really hitting us. And it manifests in different ways, right? Our, our decision makers are now line of business rather than uh, just the CIO. And the CIO is still very important. So I would say this whole um, and, and many of the technologies that are changing business, are there. there's the business model disruption like Uber and other things. But there's also, uh, you know, really the whole Internet of Things and simplification through your cell phone, the cell phone experience, the cell phone being sort of the core uh, is, a, is a very big, big shift that um, we're getting to see and experience, uh, you know, really practically. Almost every client I meet has a new idea. Um, the other big thing I'm seeing is a, a lot of the software-driven um, changes, you know, hardware uh, is still really important, but more and more things are becoming software defined, um, like both on the networking, on the storage, compute side, um, and a lot of open source software is being deployed in mission critical areas. So I really believe that this whole open source, whether it's containers or uh, you know whatever fo- form of open source that you can deploy in this whole software defined world, it's a huge benefit, but it could also be a big curse because once things move into the software world, attacking them, you know, all the cybersecurity and other security threats makes it really important that you have a trusted uh, company that you work with and not in the excitement just do, you know, something that can completely wipe out your business, as we've also experienced recently, like some companies who didn't take that very seriously. So, you know, clearly IoT, smart home, augmented reality, machine learning, data is still very, very important. You can do a lot of good things with data. I think we'll wrap up on that note because that's a very exciting point to talk on and I've had a lot of your time and thank you very, very much. So thanks so much for catching up with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you personally and professionally. Yeah, thank you for all your great questions. You definitely made me think harder about some of the things that I, you know, think about every day. So it was very, it was a good experience for me as well. Thank you, Daz. Hi there, this is Daz. Thanks for tuning into my Pioneers of Possible podcast series. I trust you've had as much fun listening to this episode as I had producing it for you. Now, before you go, I have an exciting exclusive offer to share with each and every one of you. You've heard me talking with IBM's best and brightest right here in my podcasts. Now you get to talk with them in person yourself. And here's how. IBM have given me an exclusive offer to give you, my wonderful followers and listeners, a free one-on-one session via phone with an experienced IBM expert. To book your call with an IBM expert, simply click on the expert advice link in the show description. And be sure to let me know how your IBM expert session goes by tagging me in a tweet with your feedback. Thanks again for tuning in. Enjoy the rest of the series. And I'll look forward to talking with you on Twitter soon.